Hi, and welcome to Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, highlighting artists, teachers, authors, and philanthropeneurs of the regenerative movement. People who are committed to and showcase qualities of planetary leadership. My name is Julian Guderlei. I am committed to a world that allows people from all walks of life to thrive. I'm your host and creator of Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast. And in today's episode, my guest is Trista Bridges. Trista is a marketing strategy and sustainable business expert who's passionate about changing business for good, strongly believing that sustainable business equals smart business. She co-founded Read the Air to shift mindsets, business strategies, and ways of working towards business models that put sustainability at the core. Trista's extensive career experiences span various geographies from Europe to the Americas and Asia in sectors including consumer products, media, tech, healthcare, and financial services. Trista is also the co-author of the recently released Leading Sustainably, The Path to Sustainable Business and How the SDGs Changed Everything. So with these words, welcome, Trista. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm excited for our conversation, uh, you know, about creating more and more sustainable business at the core or regenerative business and how the SDGs were really, um, you know, at some point the world's best focused effort to come together. And I think at this point we can, we can really see all the teams and organizations that are even going way beyond what's originally kind of laid out there by the UN. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think if we can get into it a little bit later in terms of progress, which is unfortunately entirely too slow. Um, but I definitely think that, you know, they really help to kind of structure how we think about sustainability currently um, and certainly mobilize different stakeholders and different groups uh, around the idea of a sustainable future. Yeah. So, Trista, you're sitting in Japan today. Um, I yes. said it in the introduction, you, you've been all over Europe and the Americas. You've lived in Tokyo for about five years. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe tell us, tell us a little bit of that story of, of, you know, how you came to be a global citizen like that. Sure. It's, it's a bit of a, a winding story, I guess, if you will. Um, I'm actually, I'll kind of start at the beginning. I'm actually uh, American, uh, which you can probably hear in my accent. <laughs> I'm originally from uh, New Jersey. Uh, I grew up in New Jersey. And actually, I would say that I grew up in the same place in my entire life uh, up until the age of about, um, I'd say 18 or so before I went off to school. And I went off to school not very far away, about 20 minutes away. So I didn't have a passport till 1999. Um, and actually, um, I went to, when I went to business school, uh, I met uh, my husband at the time, and he was about the complete opposite of me. So he actually had lived around the world. He grew up uh, part of his life in Tokyo, uh, in Brussels. He was originally from California. And, you know, after we decided to, you know, to, to get together and such, he told me that he very much wanted to leave the U.S. Uh, and, and go to Europe. And he actually was very interested in venture capital at the time, which was a bit of an odd time. It was 99, 2000 was the tech boom, but there wasn't much of venture capital and startup activity in Europe at that time. Uh, so I thought he was a bit crazy, but I took a leap of faith. Uh, I went to uh, London first. Uh, he went to Paris. He dreamed of living in Paris. I, I said, pretty much refused at first because it was so far from home. Yeah. And I said, well, if I'm going to go somewhere, I'm going somewhere people speak English. Uh, and actually what happened is, I, you know, as we kind of got to know the continent, I, I really fell in love with France. Uh, and uh, we got married. I settled in Paris. And uh, that's where I built uh, the core of my life, really. Uh, I was there for 13 years. I, I did lots of things while I was there. I, I did uh, consulting uh, with lots of large brands uh, around strategy and marketing and those types of topics. 
I also worked for Thompson Reuters for a time and did some strategy work for them. And then after that, um, actually, they, they wanted me to move back to the US, uh, Thompson Reuters at that time did. And I refused. I said, I actually want to stay in Europe. So I co-founded a tech blog. And uh, that was an incredible experience for me because I really learned a lot about the world of tech, about the world of rapid change, innovation, uh, and how that was really impacting our world. And I also got into writing. And I think writing for me was really important because I had never really been someone who wrote a lot, but I, I learned a lot about how to speak to people to get their story and understand a lot about, you know, um, kind of their perspectives and be able to put that into words. And so that really gave me the foundation for this book uh, that I'll talk about in a moment. Um, but after, after several years in Paris, about 13 years, we also got French nationality while we were there as well. And we felt, okay. well, let's go do some other things. And we've moved to Asia. And kind of that's how we came out to Asia. And we decided on Japan because we had a lot of friends and roots and links here. Uh, but also it's just a fascinating country and it, it's a place where you learn something every day and it really was the country that was kind of the start of the boom of asia really you know 30 40 years ago um totally. and so that's kind of my story in terms of how i am today and i'm also a mom i should say uh, i have a wonderful son who's nine and living here is a great experience for him as well i bet i mean growing up you know all over the map is is a total privilege but also such such a great way to to, to set oneself up for later in life. Um, Trista, I'm curious about this writing process you talked about. Like, so how did that um, show up being abroad, having the time, having the space, and, and just you know, starting to receive a gift, which then ultimately turns into you know, like publications and books and et cetera, but like at the beginning of it, maybe walk us through that. I know that's always interesting yeah. for people listening in like, how does my creativity actually kick in and, and how did you experience that? So when I was doing the, um, the blog, uh, the media company that I mentioned earlier, my co-founder was a, uh, you know, a millennial, right? And I'm a very much a Gen X person, right? That's a bit of my age, but, and he was a millennial from California. And at that time he was very young. He was probably about 23 or 24. And, and he was very much the type of person that, that was bold about writing and saying things, right? He, he very much pleaded that it was important that you kind of just shake things up a little bit. And I was not, I was a consultant. I was a bit older. I was very controlled. And, you know, people would, you know, the way it used to be, now they're trying to kind of control that a little bit. But even 10 years ago, you know, people would just kind of write whatever they wanted in comment sections, right? <laughs> we, we see that now, and now we're seeing the negative effects of that. But, you know, it was, it was hard for me, the criticism side of it. And it really kind of prevented me, I think, from expressing myself. But I started to do it more and more. And I think that really helped me open up and helped me open up to people. I was also not the kind of person mm. who just went out and talked to people. I was not a real networker. I was a kind person, but I wasn't the kind of person who put myself out there very much. And that probably had a lot to do with my upbringing. I, I was raised, I didn't mention this, but I was raised in, uh, like I said, New Jersey, but I was raised in a predominantly white area. I'm uh, African-American, Black American. And, you know, to kind of navigate that, you, you, you tend to control yourself in a lot of ways, what you say, what you do, you maybe don't express yourself as much. Um, just to be able to manage in that situation, you know, in the 80s, uh, going up at that time and being kind of the odd person out, if you will. So I was very controlled in, in kind of how I behaved and how I acted. And I probably still am to a bit of an extent, but it really opened me up to talking to people. And I, the reason I mention that is that writing a book like this, um, which is based on, on over 100 interviews 
with a lot of people from around the world, it requires you to be able to just kind of knock on people's doors and say, will you talk to me? And I actually had the idea because um, I met my uh, co-author of the book here in Tokyo. And I said to him, you know, we were talking about career changes and getting more into the sustainability spaces about three years ago, which we both have been in and out of in some capacity, but maybe committing to it more seriously. And I said, why don't we just write a book? And why don't we just see if people will speak to us? And at first I didn't think I would. And the reason is that companies are very um, cagey about this topic. (laughs) They're less so today than they were three years ago. Uh, But they are very much, because there's been a lot of criticism around companies and rightly so, (laughs) right? (laughs) They haven't always done things they should be doing around this. They've been doing some bad things. Um, And- I think that's really a visible trend in the progression. (laughs) We used to, companies used to hide things and not try to try to show and then sustainability became a thing and then we, we started realizing wow it's way worse than we thought now yeah. in 2020 we're seeing direct effects of climate change and you know the impact yes. of climate everywhere mother nature is ruffling its feathers i think it's it's time for very bold action towards harmonizing with nature but yeah like so you knocked on people's doors to to get those reports and, yeah. and that's and to, and to just get them to talk and we actually got a lot of people talking to us right and in Japan, we get a lot of people talking to us, which is really, was really a bit shocking, right? Because Japan is not the kind of country that you just knock on someone's door and then they just say, come in and speak to me. You know, there were certainly a lot of people who, you know, showed their sustainability reports and were doing these things. But we asked a lot of hard questions about, well, well what are your challenges? Do you feel you're doing enough? Do you feel that, um, that you could be bolder? And we also purposefully didn't just interview big companies. So we have companies in the book like H&M and Coca-Cola and uh, HSBC, these, you know, these large, uh, Sony, Ricoh, these large, huge companies. But we also wanted to interview companies that we call mission-driven companies who um, we call them purpose-led companies, lots of names for them, but companies that we said are sustainable from the start. And we have five profiles of five of these companies in the book. And the reason we put them in is because we wanted to show that it is possible to build a successful company that is sustainable in its founding, in its principles, in its operational model, right? So, uh, so that's what we set out to do. And in the book is really an exploration of, it's kind of a journey in itself of how did we start, how did sustainable business and the concept start? So, you know, you go back to John Elkington and Cannibals with Forks and, um, you know, a lot of the changes that have been happening at the EU level, also a lot of the pushback of companies, um, you know, so certainly the Nike uh, sweatshop issues, right? And we go through all of that and then we come through topics like, like measurement, measurement techniques, sustainable finance, case studies uh, in different businesses, looking at different industries and how they can do better, including industries like fashion and insurance and tourism. And, uh, and then kind of giving some tips at the end. But one last thing I will say is one other thing we had to do is that we finished writing this book, finished our manuscript last year, but we finished the final submission and the, the rewrites, if you will, in April and May. So we had to add parts about COVID in the, in the book. So we, we didn't maybe structure it around COVID as much as we would have liked, but it changed a lot of our story. So we had to change the story a bit as well. Yeah, absolutely. It changes the story also in how we see, um, this was explored in the, in the podcast now a few times, you know, how we see what's essential suddenly changed. Everyone mm. slowed down in the same way. Nature was recovering in some spots, you know, more than ever, especially ocean, and, and you know, um, wind and air quality. 
but really I think it showed us as humans that we are collectively able to change right away much more so than we ever we ever understood before wouldn't you think oh absolutely I mean I'll I'll give just one anecdote this isn't specifically about sustainability there's there's several but in Japan it's country where as you probably know it's working culture is quite difficult right people work a lot they work long hours and, and you kind of are married to the company although this is this is changing right because their lifelong ins- employment isn't really as you know prevalent as it used to be but you know you would talk to people before the crisis and they would say you have to come to my office for a meeting you know there's no if ands or buts about it and we can't work from home that's impossible here but when COVID happened and the government asked people kindly, because they didn't mandate it in Japan, by law, they can't mandate things such as lockdowns and such. So they strongly encourage, and because of the culture, people strongly comply. They encourage companies to go to co-working. And now it's kind of the reverse effect. Now we find that now that things are opening up and it's actually you know a lot you know calmer here, right? We still have certainly cases and problem, but people are actually saying, I can't meet with you in person. <laughs> we can only meet uh, meet uh, by by uh, you know Zoom or Skype or some other other method, or we're going to have to hold off. I, I think that that's it's it's transformed um, a country and how it's working in a way that it hasn't been able to for 25 years. They they essentially missed the entire teleworking revolution right here, and actually COVID is speeding it up. And that's just one. And then I would also say on the sustainability side of things, if we look what's happened in food and in food systems and people thinking more seriously about where's our food coming from, as you recall in the US in particular, there were a lot of issues around food during the early stages of the pandemic and a lot of transparency into our problems around food, right? In terms of supply, where it's coming from, them throwing out, you know, like gallons of milk, right? You know, or tons and tons of milk. Uh, things, just anecdotes like that, that really heighten people's awareness about, should we be going back to looking at how we farm? Should we go be going back to um, or organic processes? Should we be looking more at the industry in general and, and how it can, can get better food to people um, in better and more humane ways? Mm. So I think that there's so many learnings that have come from this crisis that affect sustainability. And I would also say that actually have made it more pertinent for people than it was prior. Yeah, that's a very interesting one. You know, I think people are also waking up to the realities of what we've been doing on this planet. I don't know if in Japan you've seen the, um, it's even on Netflix, uh, the Netflix documentary, Kiss the Ground, um, Mm. just launched here in, in the US and Canada and basically goes on detail into you know, what pesticides really were and why, why we started yeah. using them and how the future of agriculture, sustainable food, regenerative food production has, you know, there will still be automations, but there will be much less of this old paradigm um, kind of product, but much more nature's wisdom kind of, you know, supported by human doing. Um, did you see that movie, Kiss the Ground? I haven't seen it yet, but I will certainly add it to my list Definitely to watch. Add it to your watch list. Highly recommend that for everyone. Yes. Um, and the, the importance of saving the soil in the sustainability um, conversation or the regenerative conversation. Uh, yeah, so, so tell us a bit more about leading sustainably. I'm, I'm, I'm curious now about the book because, you know, you've, um, you, you walked us through it. Um, mm-hmm. What are maybe some of the takeaway um, 
dinner stories you could share something that you know reading the book people will be like oh my god i never knew that this is this is the way it is so i would there's 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 lots of interesting learnings but one, a couple things that i think may not dawn on people so if you look at the sustainability activity within many companies it, it, it's it's minuscule right it's uh, one person maybe they have a supporting team maybe they have some uh, counterparts in, in some of their affiliates around the world but we spoke with organizations that had at most uh, maybe 25 people working around sustainability an organization of 150,000 people and I raise this because we often want companies to do better around this topic but in many ways you know having you know with background coming from uh, strategy and consulting and on the corporate side of things I know very well that Activities and initiatives aren't sufficiently or properly resourced in terms of people, in terms of money, in terms of, or even aligned with business targets, right? You know, may, may, and also putting incentives in place for people to achieve those targets or putting in place, um, you know, we have this carrot and stick paradigm, right? <laughs> Making sure that people actually do what they're supposed to do. It is very difficult to encourage uh, wide-scale change. And so you meet a lot of sustainability officers who I just believe are not properly supported at all. And that's one of the things that we stress in the book is that you know, organizations need to be approaching, transforming their organizations towards more sustainable business models more seriously as they would any other change management initiative, right? So I think that's one thing that kind of, I, I always kind of knew that, but that's actually a pretty important thing. Businesses need, uh, they need structure around ideas. They need resourcing around ideas. It's not just going to happen because a CEO says, yeah, so we think sustainability is important and we put it into our annual report and we're talking about this more frequently. <laughs> it has to be an organized uh, approach. I think I would say that was probably one learning for us. And, I, and I, I hope that's something that business managers and business leaders will seriously take away from this book to support their, their, their um, organizations more. Another thing that I would say uh, that I, I hope people will take away from it is that the only way we're actually going to achieve what we need to achieve as a society is through engagement amongst different groups and organizations that maybe have no um, history of working together, right? So if you have organizations who've never done anything around sustainability before or who have had a very difficult history around these topics, they absolutely need to work with organizations that focus on this all, about, all the time. So we're starting to see much more, which you're probably aware of, there's a lot of uh, multi-stakeholder initiatives at the UN level, um, at different organizational levels. So for example, in fashion, you have um, Make Fashion Circular, which is one that the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, for example, founded. Definitely, um, Make Fashion Circular, yeah. Yes, Make Fashion Circular. There's so many out there now, but what they're encouraging and pushing is that all of these organizations come together to solve this problem. And I think that this is actually something that's a challenge for companies for a few reasons. One, you know, and working with NGOs, some have done it very well. So there's an organization we interviewed called Novodor Disk, which is a um, Danish pharmaceutical company, and they've been working with Red Cross for many years. They're quite good at it. Um, other organizations are not because they've seen NGOs as adversaries and vice versa, I would say. 
But you know, NGOs know how to work around social causes and issues. They are absolutely imperative for companies to be collaborating with in some capacity. Another thing that it forces them to do is to work with competitors. And that may seem for people who are not in the business world an odd thing, but you know, but they're not used to working with competitors. Pepsi's not used to working with Coke, frankly. But both of them are have the same problem, which is they produce thing products that maybe are not best for us, right? Clearly, but also they create a lot of plastic issues right, as well, and many other issues. So them coming together to think about, okay, how can we better work around these problems to solve these issues at an industry level is really imperative because if one does it, that's not nearly enough. They all have to do it, right? So I, I think, you know, for me, there's, there's many lessons in the book, but those are two things that I hope people will, um, will definitely take away from it. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for going in depth into it. You know, I have a, a few more questions around, around that for you. And mm -hmm. I think it also has to do with, with trust. And um, I'm exploring the topic of trust for, for quite a while. And I think in regards to sustainability uh, and regenerative action, you know, people have also become aware how much companies have, you know, greenwashed and kind of just yes. faked the sustainability part for a long time. How do you think we can reconcile cr trust in that conversation? I think uh, this is a huge issue, and I think it's absolutely still happening, for sure. I, one thing, though, I think that is helping, helping a lot is that I talked a bit earlier about mission-driven companies, and I think that it's kind of we have to maybe work around the issue. The only way the companies are going to get better on this and to actually take concrete steps is for us as consumers to force them to do so, right? Um, I think that's one thing, right? So I think oftentimes supporting businesses who are better make them better. So we've seen this, for example, in food a lot. There is a, um, a survey which uh, you may have seen that NYU Stern does. They have an institute that they do which tracks uh, progress on sustainability. And it's focused around the U.S., but I think it's pretty telling. And we talk about this a bit in the book. And what they found is that over the last seven or eight years, between 2013 and 2018, something like 50% of all the growth in consumer products came from products that were marketed as sustainable. A lot of them from small, from small brands. Uh, and by over the last year, if you kind of move that forward a little bit, 2014, 2019, it's gone up to 57%. So that shows the last few years it's accelerating. And what's happening is that consumers are voting with their pocketbooks. And a lot of these smaller companies are being bought by larger companies, or a lot of these larger companies are really concerned about them, right? It's really forcing them to be more transparent, to be more honest and open about what's going on with them. And we're seeing them very quickly improve what they're doing and improve around, uh, around the sustainability, which is a great thing. So I think that's one thing. Another thing is I think, you know, there are a lot of people's instinct is to avoid these companies. But I think actually we need more minds, sustainability focused minds and oriented minds and younger people in these companies. I think that we're at a time where a lot of uh, people are gravitating towards um, startups and small companies. And I think that's a wonderful thing. We absolutely need to continue to do that. And that also does put a lot of pressure on companies, right? The, the fight for talent. This is an important one. I also think though that people need to be in those companies fighting the good fight because they're not going away. 
we, we, these the companies are, especially large companies, they're systems almost. And a lot of stuff kind of just happens because it's just the ordinary course of business and how the economy works. And people just buy it as things instinctively. That's how powerful these organizations are. But somebody has to be in them changing them, right? So making, getting to the point where you can trust them better requires having people who care about that, right? Who, who care about helping to move those organizations forward. And it's not easy. But I think we have a new generation of potential leaders who are going to really help uh, change things in a positive direction. Yeah, definitely. There is only that direction at this point, right? It's uh, forward and you know, learning how to amend the systems and learning how to focus on what really matters on this planet. And I think it's, it's just part of the journey to face some of the discomfort and the uncomfortable um, kind of consequences from our past decisions. Exactly. And I would last thing, one last thing. I, I wrote an article about this recently um, I, that I think you may have seen about mm -hmm. um, consumers. And, and one of the things um, I said was that, you know, as I quoted earlier, consumers want better products and services. And, and there's increasing evidence that they're willing to pay for it. And a lot of the choices around what we buy is, is, are made by organizations. And they often encourage us to use things that we didn't even think we needed it or we may not even need right so a lot of it this is why I say people need to be in these companies forcing different decision making because a lot of it is just their choice they choose to innovate and develop products and services oftentimes without much data right they do it because they think that's the right thing to do and because there's a market there and, and I'm here to say there's absolutely a market for sustainable products increasingly so probably even more so than, than the more traditional type products that are less healthy or less good for us or less good for the planet. Um, this is you know, where the growth in the future is, right? So companies need to just make the decision to commit to it. And a lot of it is really just comes down to that, frankly. Absolutely. The choice has to be made and then the follow-up action. That's why I talk about discomfort sometimes because you know, we can't expect everything to be easy and flowers only. But as we're mastering, you know, to show up for our um, past, the poor decisions of the past, the poor structures of power, greed, and money of the past, and we learn to reconcile them. That, that is, at this point, the only way forward, I, I believe. Um, Absolutely. Trista, on that note, like, what do you think of the big picture of trash on planet Earth? Trash. What comes up there for you? Oh, <laughs> Actually, it's, you know, I'm, I'm hoping there's two things that I'm hoping happens. We make less of it. That's the first thing, <laughs> like, you know, produce less trash. That's the first thing. So this regenerative idea that you said, you know, this idea of you know, one, how can we help? How can we reduce consumption around some, some pretty key things? So certainly fashion is one area, right? So how can we get people to consume less? We will have less trash if people consume less, quite simply. How can we move people? move places in the world where they're over-reliant on packaging and plastic to other types of things or just removing it all together. So Japan is a perfect example. I don't know if you've spent much time here, but everything is wrapped in plastic, everything. Um, and so, you know, they've moved to get rid of plastic bags, right? So we have to pay for them now, but everything's still wrapped in plastic. So what happens with that? Uh, so we need to basically change people's behaviors to remove this need to constantly rely on things that create more trash, right? Uh, that's the next thing. And then, and then lastly, I would say that uh, one of the things that some companies are starting to think about is they're starting to think about products as not necessarily the end, but as the beginning. And so this is certainly around the circular movement. 
we need to understand how to use, frankly, the bad things that we produce <laughs> to produce things again, right? So can we find ways to extract from all of these horrible, you know, all this horrible kind of waste that we've produced and, and recreate things from it? So uh, there's lots of products, as you know, that are probably doing this now. One of the ones that I actually am writing an article about now that I ran across, um, they use tires, which apparently produce um, a real, they produce a lot of our problem around microplastics, which you may or may not know, uh, which it was just shocking, right? But, you know, somehow lots of tires end up bottom of the ocean um, and run off water and those types yep, of things. That's a, that's a big one. Um, and he basically, there's a gentleman that's taking soles of tires and producing, using them as bottoms of, of shoes, uh, running shoes, which uh, he saw for the first time done on a trip uh, to, I believe it was, it was in Sub-Saharan Africa. And there where people don't have means, they use tire bottoms or tires to do for the bottoms of their shoes and they crack shoes out of them, actually. And so he came up with this idea and not only does he want the shoe to be the shoe sold to be based on regenerative material, but every part of the shoe, right? So I think obviously we don't want to be producing trash to producing things, but there's so much trash <laughs> now that there's got to be a way for us to utilize this to, to create something useful and better, frankly. But you know, the first step is absolutely mm. produce less of it. I, I don't, there's no way around it. And I think this is a real problem because you have whole industries that are shaped based on us consuming a lot of things that produce a lot of trash, like the plastics industry, right? And they lobby a lot to try to say, well, you know, we're working on regenerative and recyclable type methods. But, you know, at the end of the day, there's not enough technology. We can't innovate ourselves out of that problem, really. We, we just have to change our consumption habits um, at this point in time. Yeah, I think it's definitely a big part. It's a two-way street, right? Changing the consumption habits, but then also realizing there is no uh, garbage or trash, really. Everything is still part of this um, biodiversity and molecular loop that is planet Earth. So there is no throwing things away, right? Yes. Everything has a next step in the chain of, of, of purpose. Yeah, thank you for your answer there, Trista. I, I, I love that. I and mean, it's very important to consistently present the, these ideas about garbage. Um, yeah, let me ask you a follow-up question to that. And how is it that you choose optimism at this stage of the world with your journey, with what you're doing? Mm -hmm. um, I'm always curious. You know, I think it's important, especially now, to empower and encourage all individuals to express their unique gifts. And so you're, you're a leader. Like, how do you find this optimism on a daily basis? Um. You know, it's a day-by-day -day process for me, to be honest, <laughs> because you know, the thing about being in this space is you're always reading. And when you're always reading, you're always getting more depressed, right? So there was a report that came out the other day about the SDGs and saying that, you know, with COVID, we won't reach them until 2092. And as, as you probably know, we don't have until 2092, right? It's, it's, we're quickly, and you know, our, our ecosystem, our global ecosystem is quick, quickly degrading, right? And uh, we, we need to do something. But I, I do think the thing that, that gives me optimism is that people, human beings, we are capable of some pretty phenomenal things. And I think we, we forget that sometimes, right? In the midst of our, 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 you know, our, our bickering and pettiness and anger, frankly, which at the moment, there's, there's a lot of it, right? And, and it's, it's hard to kind of keep yourself from going down that rabbit hole, to be honest. 
But I think that we see so much more engagement and action amongst the general public around issues. I think the problem is we don't yet have a good way of working ourselves out of them, out of it, right? So, you know, when 20 years ago when people started talking about this, or 25, nobody believed that climate change was really thing, right? The, the number of people who believe that was much lower than it is today, and we're finding, um, particularly in places like Europe, where you know it's pretty much come a kind of standard belief that this is happening. In the U.S., there's still a lot of skepticism for sure, but we're even starting to see, especially amongst younger people, younger conservatives, that this is a, is a critical issue. And, and it's really just a question of time. How quickly can we get past the current uh, entrenched, uh, certainly political class, but also management class that just cannot pull themselves away from the status quo way we, we do business, to have a newer generation of people who are willing to kind of really push us forward to a better model. And I think, you know, sitting in 2020 with all this going on, you know, with the US election, which is, you know, descending into a bit of a nightmare, and hopefully we get a, a clear, good result from that. Um, certainly things you're seeing happening in Europe, certainly in the midst of a pandemic, I think sitting in this point in time, it seems unsolvable, but 10 years isn't very far away. And a lot can change in 10 years. And I think we're going to have a really big generational shift in 10 years. And the millennial generation, which is certainly one of the ones that was the first to be, in a majority sense, uh, focused on these issues, in 10 years will be, you know, the oldest millennials will be 48 years old. You know, that's not, <laughs> they're no longer babies. That's the age when people now, as we know, are starting to, to, to really run things. So we're going to see a big shift around that. Another thing which I think is making me, me hopeful is that I think there's a changing mindset in the world of finance, which, uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk around ESG and ESG screening around investments, but we're also getting investors who are really starting to see investing in companies that are not focused on sustainability as a risky proposition, right? And I think the world of money and where it, it, it goes and what it gets allocated towards is incredibly important. And particularly on the, we call it yeah, impact 100%. investing side of things, we're starting to see more momentum around people realizing that maybe we need to be valuing social and environmental impacts alongside financial ones. And take that into account when we value companies, right? And I think that's been a really positive development recently, and we're starting to see more and more money go into that. There's still a huge disparity between the total amount of private equity that goes into tech, for example, and then in, impact investments. But I think people are seeing it as an area of opportunity and as an area for the future. That's a really positive development. And I think also maybe what's fueling that too is, you know, the, in the tech community, obviously, there's been so much uh, paper value that's been created, I'll call it, over the last 15, 20 years, certainly from the likes of Facebook and Google, et cetera, et cetera. And these companies have grown a lot during the, the, the pandemic, but there's also a lot of skepticism around what we destroyed or what we gave up in supporting these types of organizations and even models like Uber and that types of thing. These, these organizations in many ways destroyed a lot of the social contracts that we had in place in different places around the world. So from a social perspective, I would say that investors are, are increasingly concerned about the social impacts, as we all are, of tech companies and the tech, you know, 
the tech world on our lives. So perhaps the next wave of entrepreneurship will focus on models that help us solve problems and solve real problems, right, rather than creating them. Yeah, you know, I think what I also hear you say there is that at this point in time, you know, we, we got to really commit on this direction in a complete new way. Um, because it sounds like these predictions, you know, and you mentioned, mentioned a few of them, these predictions about how long we have time for, those are just the worst case scenarios. Now it's our job to beat them, to beat those timelines and exactly. to, to figure it out with our innovative power, with our ability to resonate with nature, to even be humble enough to learn from original people's ways of living with the land and, you know, um, find a role for technology at, you know, where, where it actually fits in, not just this, this uh, technocrat kind of um, technological idealism, but, but more so really the, this pathway through the middle where we, we can be a humanity that, that thrives again. Yeah. And, and, and I, and that is certainly, you know, certainly being a mom, anybody who has children and even those who don't, when you think about, okay, well, what world will they grow up in? And, and in, in some ways I feel quite guilty because I know they're going to have a, a much more challenging time. Right. When, when I grew up in the sense that they're going to have to fix a lot of problems and they're not being left with a world that's going to be easy for them. Right. But perhaps, you know, they're really going to be the ones that, you know, when history, people look back on history, they say, well, that was the generation that, that charted this path that you're, that you're mentioning, right? This, this, they took a decision to really take us in a different direction and they created a, a, a better, better, better planet, right? And a better, better world um, for the future. So it, 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 there's a lot to be done and it's a real challenge, I think. It's gonna be massively challenging for our society, but I don't think there's really a choice at this point, right? At some point, you know, everybody's going to have to really get behind a better model and we're all going to have to take some some more like you said bolder steps right to get there 100 percent, yeah yeah well you know this is such a great conversation with you trista i have i have another another question here and and that's because you're such a traveler i'd love to know the three places in the world that you know left a, a strong impact in your experience or in your heart Oh goodness! So many places. I went once on a. I went once to Arusha in Tanzania. This must have been like 15 years ago. And at that time, I don't even know if it still happens, but you could go on a walking safari. So you kind of walk, and in this area, there were no predators, right? So I should say that. So well, supposedly, I won't say supposedly. We were told there are no predators, so no, no lions and such, and. Uh, it was just myself and my husband, and we walked with this you know, guard. He has kind of an, uh, has a has a big big gun with him. But you walk through that, and you see animals close up, and you see nature, and you see what the world looks like untouched. You know, and at that time, now it probably looks very different, unfortunately, because of the effects, the impacts um, that that we humans are leaving on the world. But that was just such a beautiful experience, you know, um, to, to be in the midst of nature, nature in that way and to see, you know, our wildlife in their, their home, right, I think was just an incredibly wonderful experience for me. I'll say that. So, so that was certainly, certainly one. 
Another one which oh, that does sound really unique. Yeah. 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 Another one which happened last year, which I did because, well, my mother asked because my parents' 50th anniversary and they always wanted to go on a cruise. And I'm not a cruise person. I, I have my misgivings about cruise ships, but you know, it's my parents' 50th anniversary, so I indulged them. And we went on a cruise to Alaska and we left from Vancouver. And so, you know, I, the interesting thing about that cruise was that there were two things that struck me. One, we went to the glaciers, right? Uh, and, and you, the cruise ship kind of comes up to the glaciers and you sit there and you look at it and it kind of goes in this circle, the cruise ship, right? So you can, everybody can see it. And you're sitting there watching it. And there's this process called calving, I, I think it's called, where parts of the glacier kind of fall off, right? Just like, I guess, our hair would. But you're sitting there and it's, there's parts of it falling off and you're asking yourself, is that supposed to happen? Is that not supposed to happen? <laughs> I don't think it's supposed to happen as much as it's happening in the time that I've been sitting here. And I was just thinking like, this glacier is probably not going to be here um, if, we, if we keep up. And it's such a majestic thing to see a glacier. It's huge. It's so huge that you don't, you're, because of perspective, it seems smaller than it is, wow. but it's really massive. And I think I'd like to go back another day, but not on the cruise ship. <laughs> in another capacity, just to kind of see what happened, maybe another 10 years from now. I, I think it's important to see that. And that was something I would also say. And then also we went up, to, we finally went up to Alaska and we, you get these tours and you walk around. And I think the thing that struck me, especially being from, you know, the lower, I guess the lower 49, they're called, or the lower 48 rather, is the, how much in Alaska, the native culture uh, the indigenous culture, I should say, is a part of that state. I was never aware of it to that extent. And how important is, you talked a bit about indigenous cultures earlier, how important it is for us to go back to these cultures and to really understand and learn about, um, about, about them, about, about their understanding of the land and of nature and their connection to it. And I, I certainly think that, you know, certainly in Alaska, their history is probably very, and I know is very difficult, similar in Canada and similar in other parts of the U.S., around indigenous cultures in Australia, for example, we find the same thing. But like you said, we need to reconnect with these cultures. The, the, the people who were still remaining of these cultures are a part of, our, of us, right, in many ways. Uh, so that really struck me, that trip. And then the last thing I'll say is, uh, I went to, I've mentioned before about going to France um, a lot and moving there and eventually settling there. And I think one of the reasons I fell in love with France and, and fell in love with it so quickly is I used to spend a lot of time, I still do, in the countryside areas. I have actually a house still there. And the thing that I found so incredible, and this is, I think, the case in many places in Europe, was that it was so easy to go to these 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 places in the middle of nowhere that had so much culture and so much history and that they were still there right there's many places where i speak especially from the u.s right where a lot of you know the u.s looks very different today than when i grew up and we kind of moved to stamp out a lot of of traditional things about our society right and what i found in france is that there was still very much this strong desire to retain those things. And just the fact that you could go into the middle of nowhere and find like a Michelin star restaurant, 
or that there's still artisans that are making incredible products and things. And I think we're rediscovering this now in the U.S. and there's a new wave for that. But I, I think it's just to say that from a business perspective that, you know, small businesses, artisan techniques uh, are important, right? And if we want to get back to, talked a lot about kind of back to uh, natural farming and our cultural techniques, we have to go back to smaller scale farming. We have to go back to smaller scale production. Fashion has to go back to artisan techniques, for example. All of our industries, and particularly those that are consumer facing, are going to require going back to that and rediscovering that. So for me, that was transformative, I think, seeing not just a big city, seeing not just urbanization, but also seeing local communities and how the importance of their history and what they contribute is to our world. Beautifully put, yeah. Hmm. Going back while going forward, that's such an interesting yes. one. <laughs> also with like how language uh, might, might, you know, be in the way for us to see that it's it's a going back while going forward. So some consumer goods will definitely be made with what we currently call plant plastics and and all and so forth. And our tech will evolve. But at the same time, there's so much treasure, goodness, holistic wellness to be found in, you know, ancient and traditional culture and ancient and traditional ways of of, of living with with the planet. Absolutely. So on that note, Tristan, my last question is if you here with me for, for a few minutes, just zoom out on the timeline and we, you know, cast a vision for the seven generations to come after us, you know, what kind of ancestors for the future um, are we in, in your wildest dream for planet Earth? Mm. I would love to see us uh, get to a bit of a higher plane. Um, and be in a world where we have time. I think future generations, hopefully they have the ability and the time and we have, an, have a system, an economic, um, political, societal systems that allows people to focus on solving big problems. You know, I'm hoping that in the future we won't be, have such short-termism. <laughs> we have, you know, and that's probably, I think the undercurrent of, of a lot of our problems is that we don't have an ability to see beyond even next year, beyond even a few months. I'm hoping that the future world will one, still be here, right? That we'll, that we'll have made, been able to kind of overcome a lot of the problems, societal and environmental problems that we are facing. But I'm hoping that it will be a society that thinks for the long term. And we get, and that's something that I think probably people were better at in the past than we are. Because if you can't think about where we're going to go and what that's going to look like in the future, and you can't, can't visualize that, then you're not really going to take the actions to, to, to be choiceful and careful today, right? You're going to do what um, gratifies you in the short term. Mm -hmm. So I hope that, the, that we translate as humans transform the way we think about time, the way we think about the future, the way we think about our impact, not just in this moment, but our impact uh, far into the future. So that was, is one thing I hope for. And I, and I do, I think we'll always, as people, make differences between us. But I hope that maybe over time we'll get better at not doing that in such a detrimental way. You know, we, uh -oh. yeah. I, I'm somebody who has spent my whole life with people who are different than me in some capacity. And I never understand why people have such a problem with this. It's hard for me to accept. 
and it's destructive. You know, it, it, it keeps us from collaborating and moving forward. And we all have something in common with each other in some capacity. And that's something I always, I was talking to about that the other day. And uh, I said, you can always find something to connect with, with someone, right? Something. And I'm hoping that, you know, future generations will be much better at that than, than we are, we are now. Because we're, we're definitely not there yet on that front. Yeah, thank you so much for your vision, for your words, for your insights, for the work you're doing in the world. Um, Trista, thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd love to share? Any, anywhere else you'd like to point at or, or call out for? Oh, not at all. I mean, I, the last thing, I, I guess the last thing I would say is, you know, for people to do what they can in the space that they're in. Uh, I think all of us think that we, we're so small or we can't enact change or we can't, I think everyone can. I think people shouldn't be afraid to transform themselves. You know, if you, if you, especially if this is a space that people are interested in, right? There may be people listening to this podcast who are working in some job they don't like and maybe feel like they're doing something detrimental. We all, it's a journey, right? To, to, to take a step and to come into this space and working into this space in some capacity because we really need people right, to take an interest in this and to start working on the problems, and particularly if in a corporate context, right? We need more and more people to, to raise their hand and put their hands up to be able to help us in this transformation. So I would certainly encourage people to get engaged, get involved in whatever way they can. Thank you so much, Trista. Thank you for your time today. Sure, absolutely. Thank I hope you truly enjoyed this one. You took some insights away, something you can apply for your own life or something you want to share with a friend. If you truly enjoy Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, the episodes I make and the guests and interview partners I feature, make sure to subscribe, leave a review on the podcast on your favorite app on Spotify or Apple podcast, share it with a friend. And if you feel inspired, make sure to support this podcast. There are plenty of ways to get in touch with me, leave a monthly recurring financial support on anchor.fm or simply in the show notes of this episode, wherever you're tuning into. This podcast is really just about to get started featuring, showcasing, and gathering some of the most badass planetary change makers that are making this the regenerative decade on planet Earth. Wherever you are in the world, have yourself a stellar day.